Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, Critical Thinker, coming at you on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and with video here on YouTube, where you can definitely comment away and feel free to do so. You can also find this podcast at sensiblyspeaking.com, and you can comment there as well. Uh, So this week, uh, I am just newly moving into my new digs. So I don't have my studio space set up at all yet. Uh, so I'm I'm a little winging it here, uh, but I, I got all set up here, and I think we're going to have a, a great episode um, this week. I am having back on uh, a guest I've had on in the past. His name is Anthony Magnabosco, and he has um, made a real specialty out of uh, a practice called street epistemology. And we're going to talk about what that is. If you didn't catch the earlier episode, we will go over and do a little refresher on what this is all about and uh, why I think that this is actually now, perhaps more than ever in our history, uh, something that we could all use and learn something from. So Anthony, welcome to my show. Chris, thank you so much for having me back on. What an honor! Uh, I've been, I've been, I'm a, I'm a fan of your work. I, I listen to many of your shows, and uh, I guess full disclosure, I'm a Patreon dis, uh, supporter of yours. So hey, support Chris if you haven't already. Jeez, help the guy out. Thank you. Um, no, I, I like what you do, and I think what what I do dovetails very nicely with what you do, which is which is I think we have some synergies. I think we have some some common interests. And I think what I do will probably really appeal to your audience if they're not already familiar with street epistemology. So thank you so much for having me on your show. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for coming on board. Um, Yeah, this is, uh, this is, and of course, I've also for those of you who don't know, uh, I've had Peter Boghossian on in the past as well. He is the actual person who wrote a book called a manual for creating atheists, which is a title, I think all of us hate. He, he, Peter as well. He's the one who actually told me that first. Um, but it's a great book for, t- for learning how to talk to people and, and, and talk rationally. Um, Anthony, why don't you go ahead and explain what, what is it that Peter laid out in this book and how did you take it and run with it? Yeah. Yeah. He, he wrote this book and I think at the end of 2012, it came out and I read it and I was having horrible conversations with people. So the book really appealed to me. I was arguing, I was presenting facts. I was telling people that they were stupid and surprise, surprise, it didn't change their mind. They weren't coming around to my point of view. What was going on? Surprise. (laughs) What? You mean I'm stupid? Oh God, of course I am. What an idiot I've been all this time. Just look at the facts, man, and you'll change your mind. You know, right. it's funny because at the time, like, it, it, and it's, it's sort of intuitive. If I just show people how they're wrong, they'll come around to my point of view. Well, it doesn't tend to work that way. And what, he, what Boghossian was, pr- was promoting in his book was this idea of engaging with people in a dialogue where you question how they arrived at their conclusion. And if you're, if you're slow and methodical and you give them plenty of time and you help them feel comfortable they will generally come around to realizing that, oh, shoot, maybe I didn't really quite think this through. Or perhaps the, the foundation that I built all this on is not as solid as I thought that it was. The act of using Socratic questions, the premise of the book is, if you, if you ask people questions about their steps that they use to get to their conclusions, they tend to move back off of their edges of certainty. 
And I've been going out, I've read this and thought, oh my gosh, well, I'm, I'm having horrible conversations. If this is a solution, I want to give it a try. There were no video examples at the time. There were just a couple of snippets from the book of, hey, here's some sample dialogues. So I went out with a camera and I, I asked people to stop and talk with me. And I progressively got better at the approach and I was uploading examples and Bogosian himself was looking at them and people were watching them and saying, hey, try this, ask that. And here we are about going on six years later where I've had phenomenal conversations with people where you can see them slowing down and thinking about these beliefs that they've had for the longest time. And they were absolutely sure that it was true. And minutes later, you can see doubt, you can see questioning, you can even see belief revision. And it was a phenomenal thing. And I, I, I can't believe more people aren't interested in this. Like what is more important than helping people figure out what's true? I could not agree with you more. And of course that's, you know, our channels are very similar on that, on that yeah. basis, on that, on those, on those sort of fundamental points of, you know, truth matters, facts matter. Uh, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's a big, big part of that. This is, this is a search for truth and it's not the proclamation that people who are using street epistemology have figured out the truth. We're willing to admit that we're kind of stumbling through this and we want to, we want to figure out what's true and what's not. And Hey, you think that you have the truth. Let's, let's, let's examine this a little bit and maybe I'll come around to your point of view, or perhaps you'll realize that mm, maybe that's not the best reason for concluding that this is true. Exactly. Yes, the, the search for truth uh, is really an idea that I think permeates both of our channels and many, many others that are coming up. Big time. And, um, and I think that I think that people really do miss, of course, with my background, I tend to specialize or, or uh, my, my head goes in the direction of, of extremism, extremist beliefs, you know, cultic beliefs. Um, and I know how far off the rails people can get as a result of that, how far down, uh, or how violent or how how um, disturbed people can become because of belief, uh, fervent mm -hmm. belief, right? Mm -hmm. This is where mm -hmm. we're talking about fervor now. I'm not, I'm not talking about all belief is bad. I'm talking about an, a spectrum and I'm talking about the extreme ends of a spectrum. Um, That's right. And I, it's this idea of dogmatism, mm -hmm. whether you think that there's a God or there's not, if you're dogmatic about your position, it doesn't have to be about God either. If you're dogmatic that Trump is the best president or the worst president, it's the dogmatism that is dangerous. And, and asking questions in a friendly way, where you're peeling back the layers, tends to help people move off of those, those edges of certainty, like I've mentioned. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that that's a, it's a more uncomfortable place to be. Actually, let's talk about this for a second, because this is actually kind of important psychologically. A position of uncertainty is a very, very difficult place for, I think, a lot of people. Maybe I'd, I'd go out so far as to say as most people, for them to be in mentally. I think people want answers. They want answers that make sense to them, no matter how ridiculous they might sound to other people. If they make sense to Joe Schmo, he's happy with it. And if he's happy with it, then he doesn't question it, he doesn't think about it. And yet it could be causing, and here's where the problem comes in, it could be causing all kinds of trouble in his life, having these beliefs, or it could be preventing him from seeking solutions to problems he has because he doesn't believe in them or he, his beliefs stop him from being able to, um, you know, to take advantage of these things. And I'll go all the way out to, uh, what is it, the JWs with the, with the blood transfusions? Mm. Uh, you know, like the kid mm. can't get a blood transfusion. Well, why? Because we believe 
it's wrong. Well, your child is literally about to die. Yes, but mm. we believe it is wrong. That would be the best possible time for somebody to say, why don't we talk about these beliefs for a minute and maybe unhinge some of this because I think a little <laughs> uncertainty in your life might be helpful to your child right now. If you weren't so dogmatic or so certain, you know, these sort of synonymous terms here. Mm. So, so I think that, you know, unhinging belief to that degree is, a, is, is, is or could be in many, many cases uh, a, a positive thing to do. But what kind yeah, of, I think, yeah, what do you, what do you think? Uh, the, yeah, there's a lot there. Um, yeah. Un, uncertainty is a good thing. Like it can be uncomfortable to be uncertain, yes. but once you become comfortable with, with saying, it's okay that I don't know for sure that this is a, this is a fact. And it, it's, it's uh, even though it might be an uncomfortable discovery, it could be kind of liberating for one thing, but yes. Um, then you also kind of touched on, there's there can be a cost for believing things that aren't true yes and you gave a great example of the jehovah's witness and blood transfusions and that's an extreme but we see that in the news every once in a while a kid is dying because their parents had faith that their god would intervene and they refused to take that kid to the doctor or something that's right those are extreme examples but even on in the benign everyday not benign maybe banal it's just a regular everyday situations. I was just out on the trail today and I met a young couple and they, they basically said, I guess it's okay if we're believing in something that's not true because it's really not hurting anybody. Right. No, the beliefs really, even though you think that they're, they're not hurting somebody, there are, there is a harm. There is a cost for holding a belief that's not true. And this whole idea of street epistemology is to identify the steps we're using to get to these conclusions and if the process to get there is unreliable, let's be less confident in that conclusion. And we want to try to apply that philosophy or that, that mantra to everything, every conclusion that we're coming to. Let's, let's examine it. Let's, let's walk through the steps. And the, even the, the idea of, even the act of recognizing, oh my gosh, my beliefs drive my actions. A lot of people don't even really think about that. Just calling that to their attention can be valuable. Um, and this is what, this is one of the reasons why SE appeals to me so much because I see the harm that w hitching your wagon to a probably untrue belief can cause. You, you've seen that firsthand. You, you are a perfect example of this. Um, this. These can be painful things and and drive wedges in between the people that we love and can harm us as human beings. Like there are people that don't want to get behind climate change because they think God will just take care of everything. These are very, very scary conclusions that people are coming to. Exactly. I, I, exactly. And now, now tell me what you think about this, because I also um, am a very, very strong advocate of freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of belief. Um, because in the end, you, you know, you, you can't really dictate, what, what somebody should think, you know, anyway, they're, they, they, you know, they're going to think what they're going to think. They can believe whatever they want to believe. Exactly. I, I really think that's important. However, I have a high, I, so I'll say I have a very high tolerance of belief. That doesn't mean that I'm going to respect the belief or that I'll respect the person, but that doesn't mean I'm going to respect the belief itself or, and by that, I mean, it doesn't mean that anybody's beliefs are above criticism, 
or are above conversation or are above doubting. I think all I think all of it is fair game. I think it's I think we I think we should be open to being questioned about our beliefs, about talking about them. And I don't think that the mere fact that I'm going to ask you a question about your beliefs or um, or broach the subject and challenge maybe something a person believes is inherently, I don't think those are inher- that that's inherently disrespectful. I don't think it's intolerant. I don't think that it is um, a, a mean or antagonistic or hateful thing to do. What, what have you run into with this? What's really interesting, I can kind of, maybe you can start it right now. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can understand how people might be put off by you questioning their belief, particularly if the belief is tied to who they are. When, when the beliefs that we hold become so tied to our identity, when somebody questions your belief, you're, you're challenging them as a person. It could be very confrontational. It could be very upsetting. So I can understand how people might get defensive or say, how dare you challenge me about this belief or try to change my mind? Because people fall in love with their beliefs. They do. And it can be really problematic. And it what we try to do when we have these conversations is to ask the person to ex- ask the person if they would like to explore the belief with us where we can take the belief and put it under a microscope and actually step aside from it and view it from a different angle and try to distance the person from their view even if just for a minute or two and then yeah here you go take it back you know it's tuck it back away again but it, it could be a real challenge especially when it's something that you were raised in or you're part of a tribe because you hold this view, you would get ostracized if I discarded this belief or if I'd, I'd lose my job. My wife would leave me. My kids would be gone if I declared that I no longer believe this thing. So our beliefs are very tied to who we are. There's a cost associated with it. I can understand the reluctance to question, but we have to, if you value truth, you should be willing to set aside Consider the possibility that you could be mistaken, and let's have an honest examination of the steps I used to get to point A to point B. Uh, abs- perfect. And uh, I think I think uh, what you just said would be foundational to someone claiming to be a good critical thinker or somebody claiming to have critical thinking skills would be the willingness to do exactly what you just said. Between that and the and the the other foundational concept or, or pillar for me of, of critical thinking is the willingness to say, I don't know when, for sure. when you don't know. You know? you know, it's funny. We've been, we've been doing SE for a while and we've, uh, and I know we were planning on touching on in this, uh, like the improvements where we've, where we've started. I think we touched on it and then we're, where we're going. Yeah. And, and um, before I forget this thought, I wanted to bring it up. Sometimes people are reluctant to examine a belief for the very reasons I just mentioned. One thing that we've been experimenting with when we when we initiate talks with people, and you don't have to initiate talks on the street with a camera to do SE, to do street epistemology, but the prominent examples are us doing that. One thing that we've been experimenting with is doing fun little thought experiments to see if we're going to have a problem later on in the conversation. So a good example along critical thinking is, have you ever seen this? Where uh, I might make a claim, uh, this wasn't my idea, uh, Science Pete. Uh, kudos to him for coming up with this. He said, what if you just ask people, tell, tell them that, that you're going to make a claim that you own a Ferrari and then ask them on a scale from zero to 100 how sure they are that that claim is true. 
So you can spend five or 10 minutes simply discussing not even a sensitive belief that might cause them to shut down, but this, this semi-hypothetical situation. And it's interesting how people will say, oh, I, I put it at an 85% that you own a Ferrari, Anthony, just by you saying it. Hmm. Somebody, somebody, some people just say that, or they say, oh, I'll put you at a two. And then it's interesting to explore the differences. Well, why did you put yourself there? Why was that the right number for you? And then you can have a good discussion about, well, what would change your mind? What would increase your confidence? Oh, me showing you a car key would increase your confidence. Okay. Well, how much more would you increase? You can have this sort of meta discussion about, about confidence levels and beliefs and certainty and what would change our minds without even touching their belief. And you've sort of established a baseline. You can get a really good sense of how skeptical a person is with that hypothetical example. And then you can shift gears and actually say, okay, now that we've done that, uh, let's shift to a belief that you think is true. And you could say, you know, they think karma is real or a God is real. And now we've had this wonderful little mini conversation at the start to kind of establish things and, and kick things off. And it's a great rapport builder too. And that's one example, I think, where where um, we never would have done this five years ago. This has been a, a development that's come from the community of people watching videos and giving suggestions and even ourselves running into brick walls and thinking, how can I avoid that in the future? That's a really excellent suggestion uh, there on that because because it does baseline a number of things and definitely gives you a chance to establish some rapport before you dive into you know deep beliefs. But it also gives you a chance to... Um, uh, decide as the person doing the SE, do I even want to take, you know, dive in on this person? Because if their reaction to the Ferrari is odd, strange, so weird, <laughs> you don't want to have anything to do with that. Maybe you don't want to go into the next That's phase. a That's a really good point. It's a good way to flesh out whether I want to proceed or not, yeah. if they're comfortable proceeding. And there's a little twist that you can do too. You can say, well, what if I told you that this was actually a flying Ferrari? This thing could fly. <laughs> this can go to about two miles above the ground and it's 300 miles an hour. And, and then they might give a low confidence. So yeah, it's, it's really good for kicking things off and getting a sense if you want to proceed. Another thing that we do too has been really, has been really productive is uh, we call it the, 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 the truth test. Have you ever had these conversations where you're, you're talking to somebody about something that they believe in, and then they reveal that everyone can have their own truth. As long as you believe it, right? think truth, that it's true. The, the, tr the can, truth is relative thing. Yeah. Yeah. So we try to suss that out by, we carry these little boxes of candies around and we say, well, is the, is the container, uh, is there to uh, an even total number of pieces in here or an odd total number of pieces? Surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, a lot of people will say, well, it can be both simultaneously. What is so that, Schrodinger's candy? What are they talking about? <laughs> it can be both simultaneously. What? <laughs> well, it makes for a good conversation, and it's, it's, a, it's a huge hurdle that you need to overcome of before course. you move on to why they think karma is real, for example. Right. Right. No, these are, these are excellent points. I just, I couldn't. <laughs> wow. Um, it, but you know, you got to take people where they're at. Let's let, let me ask you a little behind the scenes here. So, you know, cause we see the videos and I, I love your channel. It is the most educational thing. Just watching the conversations. Um, cause you have a little GoPro like, stepped to your chest or something and you, mm -hmm, and you, mm -hmm. and you have a little clipboard and you approach people and you're very, you are, you are so mannered and so, pleasant in the conversations, which of course is, is necessary for it to work. Um, how many people, 
like percentages wise, because we don't see this, how many mm-hmm. people say no? How many people like, like, or immediately get their back up or start, you know, kind of flipping out on well, you or something? Like, no, like they don't want to participate. That yeah. Type of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Does I would that, say, does that come up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm just thinking. I think uh, I, I don't track it. So this is going off of years and years of asking questions in different in different cities, different locations, yep. different times of day. I'm wearing different clothing. Yeah, but I was generally, kinda, I was wondering on a broad basis. You know. Yeah, on a broad basis, I would say one out of four or five people will agree to talk to me. It's pretty high. I okay. think that's I think that's a pretty good success rate. Yeah, and, and there are, and, and, and there are some people. There are some people, Chris, that I don't even ask because they're, they have their earbuds in, they're walking by, maybe they, they, they're they sneering at me. like So there's some bias, I think, inherent in this. Right. Um, perhaps the people who do agree to talk to me, maybe they're a little bit more open to belief revision or, le- or more closed, or they might have a tendency to have uh, less justifiable beliefs than some other people, or you know, who knows? I mean, this needs to be studied scientifically, but a good portion of the people that I ask do stop and talk. And then the overwhelming majority of the people who do stop and talk and we have a good a chat tend to report that they loved it. They loved it. Even though it was a sensitive belief that was tied to their identity, the way that you go about it when you use street epistemology, if you, if you, if you seem to be doing it correctly, they will tend to enjoy it and want to look into it more and probably meet with you again. And that, now, yeah. how can you say, who does, how does that ever happen when you're arguing and debating with somebody and presenting them with facts? It doesn't generally happen. Well, that's exactly right, which is, which is the number one reason I said at the beginning of the show that this is something that is more important now than I think it has ever been before because our conversations on social media are, are, are many times just awful. Uh, now I'm, you know, I, they're not always that way. And it's not like, you know, every friend is at every other friend's throat, but it happens often enough. I mean, I was blocked two days ago by somebody and I actually agreed with them. <laughs> I was just well, here's pointing the out a couple logical fallacies in their argument and it got so ugly so fast. It was, let, let me point out a few obvious, let me point out a few obvious examples of differences between what you've just outlined and what I do. Yes. I go out in public I'm having face-to-face conversations with people that I don't know. They're being recorded and know they're being recorded. So they might be on a better behavior. It's face-to-face. So they might be a little bit more cordial than normal. Um, not that face-to-face eliminates all kinds of misunderstandings because it doesn't, but I think it is better than a text-based conversation. Without there's doubt. Less, yeah. There's less likely, you know, somebody going to pull up a link or say, hey, watch this video. And that, that might happen during a text conversation. On Facebook, you probably have people observing, so the stakes are a little higher, right? Your friends are watching. This is Chris Shelton arguing with him. Right. He better, better freaking represent. <laughs> and that person might be, you know, that person might be on their toes a little bit. And then other people might want to join, join in to goad you or to say, attaboy, which might end up hurting the conversation. Yep. So there are a lot of advantages, I think, to having a face-to-face. And it might even, SE might even be more effective, possibly. I, I don't know if this for sure, but I'm I'm gonna just throw it out there and we'll see what happens. It might be more effective when you don't know the person all that well. So when I get into an Uber and she makes a, a statement about how if you just believe it, if you just believe it like the secret and you believe it's strong enough, you can make it happen. 
I've had great conversations with strangers and I, ha I have had street epistemology based conversations with family members and close friends, but it is different. It's, it's challenging. It's more challenging, I think. And I'm not exactly sure why that's the case, but um, it, de it definitely seems to be the case. I wrote an article about this. Uh, there's a, on the street epistemology website, if you don't mind the plug, there's no, um, an article that I wrote. I wrote an article called how to use street epistemology or using street epistemology with loved ones. And I point out some of these differences. Well, there it's important. I'm glad you said that actually, because, uh, cause it is different. Um, our, you know, intimate ties with people always bring emotional ties and connections. And with people you meet on the street, there isn't really much of an emotional connection beyond you're both human beings. Maybe mm -hmm. the person is attractive to you for some reason, or maybe there's, you know, there, you know, there's something about this person that appeals to you in some fashion, but they're total strangers. I mean, you don't know anything about them really. And so there's not an emotional commitment there mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. a, in a, in an intimate relationship or familial relationship or friendship relationship, you have, you're invested. And, and if you, you know, upset this person or, uh, you know, cause a rift or something, then that threatens the whole relationship and that, yeah. that threatens our emotional stability. That, that, that very well could be the case, but here's why I like promoting SE so much. I, I would like to get so many people interested in that, in this topic of street epistemology, that my loved ones, my friends and family, while they may not run into me using SE, they might run into somebody else using SE. And that's why I think it's so important that we all get familiar with this tool and try to learn it and try to promote it as much as we can. Because I do think that everyone's talking about problems and how do we fix this discourse issue? SE might actually be a solution. This might be the solution to fixing the problem. So we want to get people excited about it and experiment with it and test it like in a rigorous scientific environment, not just by looking at videos or something and figuring out what is the best way to roll this out. How can we improve discourse in the, in the world? We really need to start doing this because the stakes are high. The stakes are very, very high. I could not agree with you more on that. Peter himself told me that SE doesn't work on social media, but I think you have experimented with this or tried this or what is your, what's your experience with this? Well, it all depends on what you mean by work. If, if you mean, if you mean, questioning a person in a respectful manner where they slow down to think about the belief you know that, i would say yeah that works for well sure enough yes but that, you, that would work but, um but belief you, revision yeah. i think it's possible that somebody might revise their position based on based on a conversation let me put it this way uh, i had a i had a dialogue with a woman i ended up making a tutorial out of it i think it's my sixth street epistemology tutorial video fifth or sixth where it occurred all it was entirely over twitter where this was back when, this was years ago, when Obama was president and she thought that he was a, a secret dictator who would not leave office when his term ended. That was basically her claim. So I SE'd her. And it, it had the usual challenges. People were spotted the thread and weighed in and told her she was stupid, but I kept focused and I kept it respectful. She still hates Obama, but about a, a, a several months ago, Something, I can't remember the exact thing, but she messaged me out of the blue to point something out about Obama or about Trump or something. She's a huge Trump fan. And, uh, oh gosh, her, her tweets make me sick. But I, I want to, we follow each other. Anyways, I'm, I'm getting off track here. She remembered the conversation enough to reach out to me years later to pass along some other little tidbit of, 
of the discussion that we had, something that was relevant to our discussion. Who does that? Like she's had thousands of conversations with randoms on Twitter since that time, but she remembered ours. And that's what I think is so important about these discussions that they tend to, to stay with people and resonate with them. And we, we like to frame this in terms of planting seeds. Let's, let's put a pebble in a person's shoe or plant a seed. And then it's up to them if they want to address that, that seed and water it or remove the pebble from their shoe. And, and I think her getting back in touch with, with me was probably an indication that our talk stuck with her. It wasn't a typical ugly Twitter drive-by. Like it meant something to her to reach out to me. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on is that people will observe these conversations, whether I'm having them over Twitter or I'm uploading videos. There have been people that have abandoned their belief in a deity or karma or everything happens for a reason. Whatever topic we happen to be talking about, them observing me and somebody else have a dialogue where I'm using SE they've backed off on their, the viewers have backed off on their confidence in the conclusion that they shared with my interlocutor. That is a phenomenal thing. And that <laughs> I'm sharing that with folks that if you're on the fence about uploading examples of SE, please consider doing it. We have a lot more people getting into this and uploading examples and it's changing things. People are learning the tool, but people are walking back off of their alleges of certainty just from observing these dialogues. That's a great point. And of course, that also aligns with the idea of why people go to watch debates and the goal of the debaters. I mean, Dillahunty has talked about this, you know, that he's not there to change the person who he's talking to. He's not going to change mm -hmm. their mind. But mm -hmm. the people in the audience, you know, those but, but see, here's the difference. And have you had Matt on? Have you had I Matt have. on before? Okay. I haven't seen that one. I'll have to watch it. Uh, it's, it was a while back. Okay. Um, maybe the link will be right here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Got to interlink that stuff. That's right. So yeah, that's, and, and I think the, the debate approach or the Dillahunty approach where he's, he's going after the audience, right? That, that's that right. was a surprise to me. I'm going after the person that I'm speaking with, but I want to do it in a way where it's educational. And, and yes, the viewers, of course, observing that, but SE is so good for having those intimate one-on-one -on -one conversations with a stranger or a loved one, your mom, your friend. Right. That is the, this is the approach that I think we need to be taking if we're interested in challenging a person's belief, but we value the relationship. I think what Matt would probably agree is that he's possibly sacrificing the relationship with that caller for the greater good. And I, I completely support what he does. However, if I was gonna have a one-on-one -on -one with that caller, it would, and I think Matt would probably change his approach too. I've, I've heard him speak on this. He would probably pick a different tool for that engagement if he was having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with that person. I, I, I agree. I think that that's exactly the case. And I wanted, to, I wanted to contrast those things. I'm not trying to make the point that SE is debating because it's not. It's completely different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, just you, when you brought up the point about the audience changing their mind, I, I immediately thought of that because that's what that's the, actually, in a way, Dillahunty's purpose for debating. And, certain, and I think I've heard that from, from other people as well. This was one of the, pl the pleasant surprises of SE that I've discovered, and, and other people are discovering this too, is that once you learn, and, and the mechanics of street epistemology are not difficult. You ask questions to explore what a person thinks is true, why they think it's true, and how they determine that what they think is true is really true. Mechanics are not difficult, but 
the the biggest, I guess, most pleasant surprise is that once you learn how people are tied to their beliefs, how they protect them, how they become defensive if you challenge them, you begin to get a certain amount of empathy for people that hold varying views than that you do. And it changes the way that we are interacting with people for the better. People are observing friendly dialogues on topics that typically you look at somebody engaging with a street preacher, usually they're arguing with them. Look at just Google atheist versus theist or something. And you, you up until like 2012, 2013, that's all we saw online. You weren't seeing respectful dialogues at all. Only when the street epistemology stuff, I think, I know I might be mistaken on this, but I think you're absolutely right. It, it's, and I, it's changing yeah. people, Chris, and it's changing the practitioners in a positive way. And we're mending relationships with people who have varying views than ours. And it's just, it's such a great thing. I, I, exactly. I agree completely there. And God, so many things I want to talk, I want to comment on right now. Yeah. yeah. Um, first off, uh, I wanted to say, I brought up the question about social media. I have had success with it on social media in terms of using questions and you know, respectfully talking to the person. It breaks down when the other person is not respectful. It breaks down when uh, too many observers jump in and make the conversation derail the conversation, which is yeah. always a, a problem on on social media or a potential mm. problem. Um, it, you know, it, it takes, and it also is something that takes some time commitment. It's not something you get done in five minutes. So these are extended. It's a commitment. Exactly. So mm. it, it does require that from you. If you're, you know, it's, this isn't something you're going to do in five minutes. Um, you're talking about, you know, especially when you're getting into deeper things, I mean, politics, religion, gender issues. I mean, these are, these are, these are important issues for people and to the degree that they're important to the person, I think is going to be the degree of time investment it's going to take to, you know, get a crowbar in there and, and, and work mm. over some of those things. Um, so, but I have done it on social media. I have done it on Twitter like once or twice, and I've done it on Facebook a few times. Um, mm -hmm. More often than not, I have failed. And of course, one of the reasons is because of my own failings. I have my own buttons. I got my own hot topic buttons that people can push and get a rise out of me or get a reaction out of me. I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination on this stuff. Just because I preach critical thinking doesn't mean I'm I'm always the <laughs> we're emotional animals. Exactly. I mean it's it's bound it's bound to happen. Exactly. But I wanted to ask you about this because there's always something that's amused me. But I was wondering if there was a teaching moment here too, and that was Aaron Ra. You had him on some time ago, and you had him you sh you showed him the mechanics of street epistemology, and he went out and kind of made a big blunder of the whole thing because he started arguing, <laughs> and that's kind of his temperament. And I wonder, is there a, a, a temperament for this? Is there, are there people that just can't seem mm. to pick this up? And if so, is there a teaching moment there of something we can all learn? Yeah. Okay. Uh, whew, that's a really good question. So yeah, I had the opportunity to go with Arn Ra and we went out and did SE together. Uh, the link to that is right here. Um, <laughs> I'll just keep doing that. Uh, you can decide if you want to use that or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even well before I went out with him, I was thinking about it. I was like, he's taking a really big risk here because his style is more about arguing with people. And here he is trying something new. And if he does really well at it, it might reflect poorly on the approach that he's always been using up to that point. Or if he does really bad at it, 
It could be embarrassing. So the way I was looking at it is like, this is, this is gold for me. Like this is, this is good for my image. This is good for street epistemology. We've got this, this renowned atheist going out and giving it a try. Like it was all positive on my end. But I have to say, I really respect the risk that he took to go out there and do that with me. And on top of that, all the time that he spent editing, and we had, we had hours and hours of footage. And we had a blast. I mean, it was fun. We were laughing about it afterwards. And I, did, I do think that he walked away with the impression that it wasn't for him or there's probably some people that this just isn't good for. Uh, I, I don't know if I completely agree with that. I, I did write a blog post related to this too. It's called how to stay calm and focused when using street epistemology, because people ask that a lot. Like, how do you stay so calm? I don't know if I have the temperament for this. Uh, do you have any advice, any tips? And I put it all in that, in that blog post. There are some people who don't have the temperament for it. And there are some people who think that they don't, but they actually do. So my advice would be give it a try. Try to try preferably face to face, I think would be best, but and, and, and select very simple, basic goals. I get really mad and angry when someone says that they think God is real because I've, I don't believe that anymore and I can see the harm that that belief causes. But you know what? I'm going to find somebody who does believe it and just listen to them and maybe ask them a question. And hey, if they say, and I don't know, I'm going to count that as a win and I'm going to end it on good terms. You can start very slow and very basic with your goals and then just broaden it out from there. And Shit. You don't have to use street epistemology for sensitive topics either. You can use it for the person who thinks that red cars get more speeding tickets than any other car or that type of stuff, or if paper bags are really better than plastic. So you don't have to select a sensitive topics either. This is a tool that I think, I think Aaron would agree that this is a tool that is available to him if he feels like wielding it. Somebody I think mentioned in the comments of that video, which is on his channel, not mine, that watching him do SE was like uh, lighting a cigarette with a flamethrower. <laughs> and I, I love the visual on that. Yes. But I, I, like I said, I give him credit for doing it. And he, I, he seems supportive of what we're doing in street epistemology. And he opened up, he has a lot of followers and a lot of people who were attracted to his style initially saw a different way. And a lot of people are now in SE and they still love what Aaron is putting out. But I think they're they're now aware of a different approach, and that's a good thing. Uh, exactly, agreed. I think um, you know because it there is this style of um, and it's kind of the old school atheist style, I guess I could say from what I'm experienced with this stuff. I mean, I'm only coming <laughs> into this stuff for the last five years, so whatever. that's about where I started getting into it too. Yeah, but but I you know seen you know the the, the four horsemen, you know the, the you know the, the Dawkins, Hitchens, Harris. That's right. Um, seeing their style. Uh, Aaron Ross, especially more so maybe than Matt Dillahunt, who's, who tends to take a calmer approach is, you know, I'm going to bludgeon you with facts and, and, uh, and you're going to, you're going to be so, you know, uh, uh, your ass is going to be so whooped with all these facts. You're not going to have anything intelligent to say in return. And of mm -hmm. course you'll change your beliefs as a result. And what you find out in studying psychology is I'm sorry, but while it might sound like that makes sense. You can prove every single fact a person has wrong and wallop them with all kinds of objective truths and still not change their mind. And, and what's the point of arguing and giving people facts if it's not going to help them abandon a view that's probably not true? And that's, that's, a, that's such a big takeaway with SE that we want people to get is that, yes, facts are important. 
they're crucial. That's how they, that's how we navigate the world. However, we have to recognize that there are a lot of people who are not ready for that yet because they never base their belief on beliefs on facts to begin with, or the facts that they think that they did really weren't factual in reality. So you have to assess where a person is at and street epistemology is so freaking good for making that assessment. Do they think truth is objective? Are they skeptical if I were to make a claim about it that me owning a flying Ferrari? How open are they to belief revision? How, how important is this belief to them? What would be the cost if they were to abandon this belief? Meet a, meet, help, help, figuring out where to meet a person, and, and Boghossian mentions this in his book, you try to meet a person where they're at, and when you ask questions, you can assess where they're at and decide where to meet them. There are some people I might meet on the trail who are ready for facts that show that the earth is more than 6,000 years old. And they might, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare give them one fact to show that that's, that the earth is very, very old until I confirm that they were ready for it. And it would in fact lower their confidence. And we waste our time giving people facts to things that they will not find convincing. We need to stop doing that. Big time. I, uh, Thank you very much for saying that. I think that is one of the most important things we've covered here today is, and, and I think that is where social media breaks down a lot. Um, I keep going back to social media because it's one, it's how I interact with a lot of the world. And two, it's how a lot of other people interact with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so, you know, it's made our world smaller, but it's also um, made it worse in some ways. And it's made it better in tons of ways too. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not down on this just to be down on it. I just... I want to, I want to, I want to fix things. I'm a fixer. That's what I do, you know? So um, now that there was something else you mentioned there in terms about somebody being ready for it and somebody, um, and I, I, this was commented on um, recently at the hub. I I gave a talk last week and we somehow we got, we were talking about SE or something at the end of it. And some, and Mm. someone mentioned, um, I don't know if this was in one of your videos or if this was in another video or if this was somewhere else the person had seen this, but they were, um, there was a, a, a man who had been a drug addict or an alcoholic and he was approached mm-hmm. and, you know, okay, let's talk about your belief in God and his first, like right out of his mouth. That's what keeps me sober. <laughs> I, God is my, is God, Jesus is my anchor, you know, and without Jesus, I, my life would be in ruins and tatters and I'd just go kill myself. And there are definitely people out there, especially, you know, graduates or, or partakers in 12 step programs who do believe that, who, who absolutely have gone clean and sober as a result of their beliefs. And that is their anchor. What do you do when you run into somebody like that? Yeah. I think there's there are a couple of videos that come to mind where I've had conversations like that. I'm thinking it might be against the grain, which you can find right here. Um, <laughs> you're you're I'm really just making me work on this one. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to give you all these links, dude. So it's up to you to put them in. But okay, so when when you learn SE, you tend to realize fairly quickly how freaking powerful it can be you're wielding a very sharp scalpel and you need to use it wisely. And there have been many times where I've ended a talk with a person because it seemed like they were especially, or they were particularly dependent on it, that they would, uh, 
they they would ex- experience some sort of some kind of trauma or harm if they no longer believed this. So I think in that instance, I even warned him basically, like, so just so you know, when I ask these questions, they tend to help people think about their beliefs and sometimes even back off of their certainty. Like, I think I just, I laid it all on, on the table for him. And he's like, oh, no, no I'm fine, that type of thing. So he kind of gave me the green light, but I still proceeded very cautiously. But there have been many times where I've ended the talk and they're like, what's going on? Like, I thought we had two more minutes left. I'm like, ah, I think I'm going to end it now. Let's just wrap it up. But you have to be careful too. Don't be so quick to end it when somebody throws out a doomsday scenario, like I'm going to just go on a shooting spree if I don't think Jesus is real. They might be saying that as a protective measure to protect their belief. They may have just been taught that. It's a throwaway, it's a throwaway line that they've never thought about. They would never really do it. But you have to be careful. If they say it and they mean it, then end it. Um, I think I have a I have a talk. I have a blog post. <laughs> it's called When to Abstain from Street Epistemology. Ah. And it goes into these different scenarios. And I even have a tutorial video. I think it's the fourth or fifth one. It's when to bail, when to stop engaging in somebody at this level because they could be harmed as a result. And we don't want to harm people. We want to help people reflect on their views. But yes, we recognize that there's a there's a potential liability here. There's a potential response. There's a, definitely a responsibility here, I think, and an obligation that we have to be there for people. So you were talking about this takes a lot. This takes a lot more time. Yeah, it takes a lot of time to challenge their belief and walk them through the steps or have them walk you through it is, is probably more accurate. But then there's another time component that we tend to forget, but I want to, I want to elevate um, people's uh, visibility to this is that you should be try to be there for the person afterwards when they start experiencing doubt and realizing that you've left a huge pebble in their shoe try to make yourself available to them for support or to keep challenging them if that's what they want um, because they might need that they might need that help no doubt you know people talk about getting folks out of cults all the time they don't talk as much about the recovery process uh, yeah. afterwards or the responsibility to the person that you've helped get out of a cultic situation to get them on their feet, to get them walking on their own again uh, with with some stability and with some certainty uh, in themselves and their life, even if not certainty of belief, at least certainty in themselves. This is a crucially important part of interventions. Uh, This is why therapists are often involved in interventions is because the person often begins their therapy during the course of the intervention and continues it afterwards. Um, this this is very, very important for people. And it leads me, actually, I, I'll highlight that point because I, my next question was going to be to you. Um, what do you say to people who accuse you of manipulating people through SE? Mm. I'm always a little... I guess my first reaction is to be defensive because I don't think that we're being manipulative, manipulative at all. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I try to, some people, some people think I over explain what I'm doing when I initiate a talk with somebody. Um, I try to be very clear that I want to ask questions to gently challenge what you think is true, why you think it's true and how you determine that it's true. And sometimes I even, like I said, if it becomes apparent, like it could cause harm, like I, I might say, you know, I think I'm going to end it. So I, I understand that it could be, be viewed as manipulation, 
but I don't see it that way. And, and part of me now is a little amused that people want a warning label on SE, but when it comes to debating and arguing and presenting facts and ridiculing, they're completely fine with you doing that. Like when you when you're debating with somebody, let's admit it. Aren't you trying to change their mind? Aren't you trying to get them to look at it from your point of view? Um, do you disclose that at the outright or do you just start engaging? Do you warn them that, you know, so I think we're going, I think we're going above and beyond most practitioners of this method where we, we tend to explain what we're doing, what our goals are, what our motivations are even. And uh, we give them a card so that they can reach out to us afterwards, that type of thing. Um, and yeah, and think- I, I, I think that that is literally the definition of informed consent. Well, and if you think about it too, we don't tell them generally, I don't even like disclosing where I stand on the claim. Although lately I've been experimenting with um, saying, hey, if, if at any point during this conversation, you'd like to know where I stand on a God being real, let me know and I'll be glad to disclose it. But I don't, I try not to tell anybody anything. I ask questions so that they can tell me what they think. I don't see how that's manipulation at all. I can understand when you look at hundreds of videos where the topic of God comes up and mentions faith, you might notice patterns. And then once you notice the pattern, you might anticipate where the conversation's going. And then, oh my gosh, it went the same path the other one did. And then it might dawn on you, oh, he's driving to that conclusion. But I don't see it that way. Practitioners, practitioners of street epistemology should go where your conversation partner takes you. Remember we were talking earlier about meeting a person where they're at, right? I wouldn't pr- give you facts if, if it didn't seem like facts would be important to you. If you disclose that, that facts are important to you, then we might start talking about facts and what kind of fact would you accept and how, how low of, of a drop in confidence are we talking about? So um, I, I, l- l- lately I, I'm yeah. more amused than, um, than perturbed by claims of manipulation. I agree because I think that uh, if Socratic method is manipulation, <laughs> You know, then I think, uh, I mean, you know, then I think we're going to do away with what 90% of, of, of education in the world, because, you know, yeah. that's how it- I was. I was joking on Twitter. I made a tweet, something like, um, I, I wonder if I can go out for an entire year and just do thought experiments like the truth test, like with the box of candies or the Ferrari example. And just for a year, that's all I did. And if I would still get complaints from people that were trying to push a point of view. Right. Right. Well, one can't help but wonder that, you know, people who feel like you're manipulating others might be speaking out of their prejudices and their own biases. Well, what, is, what does it say about your stance on a claim if you're trying to dissuade somebody from questioning others on where they stand on it and promoting critical thinking in the process? Right. It doesn't put you on a very solid foot if you're if you're worried about what we're doing with SE. I think people who are worried about SE either don't understand it, or they're at some level they realize how shaky a foundation their core beliefs are on, and they're threatened by it. I, I yes, I think that that's exactly the case. The uncertainty again, going back to that point, circling around to that, is so uncomfortable for so many people. They want something they can hold on to, and it doesn't matter if it's true or not. It's just something they can hold on to. And if you start, you know, and if they know it's not really true, 
or if they know they're on shaky ground, well, they know that they're on shaky ground. And so here you come in. Well, we're going to shake mm. that ground up and they're going to go, no, I got <laughs> this is all I've got, man. And then, well, th- this, is why, this is why people who, who are critical thinkers and have found their way out of cults like you have or don't believe in the supernatural because we just don't see a good reason for it, that we try to be out and, and upfront with people about what we do and don't believe. We need to normalize saying, I don't know you. I think you touched on that really early on. Yep. Like th- It is very important to say, Chris, you told me that you own a Ferrari. And if you asked me if I, you know, where I was in terms of my confidence that it was true, I'd probably lead with, well, I don't know. However, I guess, you know, based on the blah, 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 we we need to, we need to be comfortable with saying, I don't know. And we need to be comfortable by gently challenging people about the claims that they make, because it does affect the way that they act and vote and it influences other people. It's in all of our best interests to, to embrace critical thinking and this tool of street epistemology in my view. Agreed. How important is the gentle part? You know, you mentioned gently. Yeah. That, that's, I'm glad that you put, you brought that up because I think a lot of people have never seen a gentle, calm discussion on sensitive topics right. and they think, oh, that's all you have to do when you're using SE is just, is just be calm and, and reassuring and make people feel comfortable and that type of thing and listen to them. But um, I, I, I'd say it's pretty important, but just because you're gentle and, and respectful doesn't mean that you're doing SE. So hmm, I'm trying to think of another way to frame that, but SE really is about asking questions, listening very intently to the, what they're saying, validating that the reasons that a person is giving for their view is really the reason, getting an assessment of, of how sure they are that it's really true, seeing what would change their mind, confirming that it really would change their mind, and driving to the foundation. That's really what SE is. I imagine you can probably go about it in a in an aggressive way, but yeah, it maybe it does seem like helping a person feel safe and listened to is probably a big part of SE. Oh, I would say from what my knowledge and experience of of human relations and and questioning and getting people to open up, I think it's crucial. Yeah. I, I don't think this works if you approach somebody from an antagonistic point of view or fashion their hackles go up they, they, they get defensive. Yeah. yeah it might also explain why se seems to fare better over face-to-face or video chat mm-hmm. as opposed to text because uh maybe you can't actually convey that they're okay disclosing this to you like it's okay it's safe uh it might and there's there's a fine line too between reassuring somebody and being condescending like you, you don't want to coddle a person you want to respect them and, and hopefully they open up and uh, you'll make great progress. If a person is being very, very open with you and very, very honest uh, with you and themselves, and they sincerely contemplate the questions that you're asking them and you use SE, you're going to probably help them reflect on their belief in a way that they've never done before. Yeah. And there's a lot of ifs in there. Um, I want to not, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't stress that to make to, as a negative, I, I stress it because I want people to really get all those things are actually ingredients to this. Mm. And you one know? of the best things that we can do, Chris, is is try to model that behavior for other people, mm-hmm. right? So if, if, a, if a theist is engaging with me on my own Facebook page, I'm going to recognize that there are other people watching 
And I'm going to be patient and calm and say, you know, I'm going to take a day to think about that. And then I'll get back to you. And I take a day to think about it and I get back to them. Like act in the way that you would like other people to act. And I think that will probably go a long way to helping people be more open and honest. Exactly. I was um, having a conversation um, just the other day with a person who does interventions, cult interventions. And um, and it was surprising. And, and, and this speaks to, this is going to get back to your point about getting people to open up. Um, it was surprising to me and talking to him about, this is somebody who's been doing this for decades, by the way. I mean, very successful, has done thousands of them. And definitely knows all the ins and outs of, of this. And one of the things that you do is you are going to be talking to the family or the people who are, you know, getting you to do the intervention. And it's surprising how sometimes it will take days before even those family who contacted you to help them get their son, father, mother, whoever it was, out of a cult will open up and tell you things you need to know in order to be able to do it properly, right? In other words, there's a there's this gaining trust thing that has to happen. And before somebody's going to open up to you about deep, intimate, personal <laughs> beliefs, mm -hmm. you know, for real, um, you really do have to establish some degree of trust, I think. Now, maybe, and I think mm -hmm. that's where another point where that, that baseline Ferrari question really is useful. Mm -hmm. I mean, because you're doing a short thing, you're not doing an intervention. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm showing a more extreme example to kind of make a point, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. about this opening up business. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of um, lately, I've been experimenting when I run into more than one person, because usually I, I like to question one person. And then if the other one's just standing there, then they usually interject and throw things off right. or might make the person I'm interviewing uncomfortable because now their their sister's watching or whatever. And I've been experimenting with seeing if the bystander, the the the, the second we, the, the second person, wants to be my helper, and um, and I I try to teach them, and I, I try to do that in a way to not only show that hey I can teach SE to this person who's never heard of it before, but to help make the other person more comfortable. So I think they're the person I'm questioning, right, might be more comfortable if their friend is my assistant. So um, I'm mentioning point. that because to you know to your point, like I think. There's certain pros and cons to being a stranger asking these questions, uh, but I think um, like having having somebody who knows the person could probably be advantageous as well. Yeah, interesting. Those good points. What sort of things? I mean, this is kind of a loosely this question, sort of loosely formed here in my head. So, so help me out here. But I'm wondering with the how many how many of these do you think you've done at this point over all these years? Oh, easily a thousand. I would say maybe fourteen hundred, fifteen hundred. Okay, so out of those fourteen or fifteen hundred, that's that is invaluable experience, mm -hmm. <laughs> by the way. Um, what patterns do you notice with people and their thought processes? Ah, uh, well, one thing that I've noticed is that whether you're uh, you're you're going to a university and you're you're in your 20s or you're 80 years old or anything else in between that people tend to have the same general types of reasons for why they think certain things are true uh, in particular like I guess my specialty or my preference is supernatural claims 
I guess I'd say like whether somebody's really, really young, like in their 20s and I'm meeting them on a university campus or they're really, really old, you know, they're 80 years old and I'm meeting them on the trail. It seems like, or anything else in between, the the reasons that people give don't tend to be extremely reliable reasons. And then of course, when we dig down deeper to get to the process they use to validate the reasons, it's even shakier. So that seems to be kind of a common pattern uh, I got another common pattern, I guess I would say is people seem to like being questioned about their views. You would think that people might be uncomfortable about it, especially that there's a stranger recording you. Generally, the people that do agree to stop and chat with me and we have a discussion, they tend to like it. They tend to have en enjoyed it and reflected on their belief in a way, like some people even say, I I've never thought about that. I, I love the questions you asked me. And you've really given me something to think about. So thank you so much for your time. That tends to kind of come up quite a bit. Um, when you mentioned before there about um, the reasons people have for validating their own beliefs, what were you thinking about there? What kind of reasons to prop up from person to person to person? Well, you're also talking about patterns. So I guess this is kind of related to that. Yeah. Uh, yeah especially I was, I was thinking reasons that a lot of people will say. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people will mention that it was something that I've always been taught. I grew up with this belief. It's, it's cultural. It's part of my identity. Um, I thought it was going to, I thought there'd be something like that. There. Yeah. That, that's a really big thing. It's not uncommon to meet people who say I was raised with this, but then I went away to school and it really forced me to start questioning things. And then I had this experience with the God and, and that type of thing. So a, a lot of people, it seems will acknowledge that they were raised with it but then they go to great lengths to explain how it hasn't skewed their thinking at all, <laughs> which you know makes me wonder if that's really the case, but that's, that, <laughs> that tends sorry, to be kind I, of a, I have to laugh at the ignorance there, but yes, it's awesome. <laughs> that, that tends to be sort of a common theme. Another common theme that comes up a lot, especially with supernatural claims, when you ask a person, well, how did you determine that that justification for you thinking that something is true? How did you determine that it really is true? And they almost always say, well, I take it on faith that it's the case. Faith seems to be a very common justification or even method that a person is using to validate their justifications. That comes up a lot. It doesn't mean that they're all using the same definition of that word. Well, I was just ask about them, to ask you, what it, do you ask them then? What does faith mean to them? Absolutely. Okay. Ask them what they mean by that word, write down the definition, confirm that that's what they mean. Use a couple of different examples where you could employ that definition of that word for different scenarios and see how they're different. And what I think you're going to find is that the way most people tend to be defining the word faith, uh, and I'm, I've developed this definition, my own personal definition of faith based on hundreds of conversations with people about it. It means, generally, it means untestable trust. I'm going to trust that this is true, but I have no way of verifying it. That's usually what people mean by faith, but I don't assert my definition onto them. I'll ask them what they mean by it, and I, I'll, I will entertain their definition for the purpose of the entire conversation. Isn't it interesting how we can do that? No real reason at all to, I mean, no, no, no evidentiary reason. <laughs> there are some people you know? who say, there are some people who say, quite defiantly, you don't even need evidence to conclude that this is true. It's so obvious that it's true. It's insulting to God to even 
propose that you have evidence to justify him. You just need to assert that he's true. Um, it's such an interesting. Fortunately, I think thing. that's that's a small minority of people who go that far. Yeah. But um, yeah, faith faith seems to be like the crowbar that lots of people use to wedge in their little pet beliefs. Now, let me ask you this, because this is a little bit, maybe a little challenging, but um, I, I don't. I'm, I'm not challenging anything you've said here, or 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 you know the idea that people accept things on faith. And, and from, you know, when, it, when, they're, when they're accepting things on faith that we think are ridiculous, of course, we want to ridicule that. And yet, what do you think of this? Do you think faith is also a driver for us in discovery, in, in, in learning new things, in finding out things about the universe? Like, even, even if it was just the, the faith-based claim of there's more to know. <laughs> you know, mm. there are things out there to learn, you know, Star Trek, you know, the final frontier, right? We're, <laughs> we're going out there on, the, on faith. We, we have no idea what's out there, but, but we think something's interesting is out there. <laughs> it could be a black void forever, but no, we have some faith that maybe there's some planets and there's some people out there and, mm. and we can hook up with them. We have no reason to think that except for our existence and that doesn't prove anything, but we're going to go out there and do it anyway. Or I have faith mm. that there is something smaller than a, than a quark. And I'm mm, going to keep mm. looking and, and see, you know, like, it, would that also not be faith in a way? Well, it sounds like the way that you're using it there is possibly as a synonym of hope. And I think we hope that lots of things are true. Hope is a great motivator. Like, I hope that this interview reaches thousands and thousands of people that want to look into SE. Like, I, I don't know that that's the case. I hope that it's true, but I think we'd probably have a way of determining, like we could look at the number of views and we can see, did we notice a spike in people joining the Street Epistemology Facebook group as a result of this and that type of thing. We could probably measure it and determine if my hope was warranted. What I think, where I think we get into trouble is when we say, I'm justified in asserting that this is true because I hope that it's true. I think that's brilliant. I think that is a, you have changed my mind just now. That is great. Okay. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. All right. <laughs> and I appreciate you thanking me for changing your mind possibly because <laughs> a lot of people are threatened by that. And I think getting my mind changed is, is, is one of the best things that could possibly happen to me. No, I think I, when it, when it's like I said, when it's uh well, as, as we've been talking this whole hour, when it's respectfully done in a gentle way, then my, my, I mean, when I, when you responded to my question just now, um, you differentiated faith and hope. And I have often talked about hope in terms of my own spiritual beliefs. I, I don't have mm. spiritual beliefs. I have spiritual hopes. So I've even mm. used that term. But you pointed out another way to use it, which which uh, which really helped there because I thought it differentiated. You know, I talk about going out into the stars and seeing, you know, other creatures or something. Well, yeah, it is hope. Right, the, right. the the faith the the difference there between hope and faith would be the faith would be I know we're going yes. to find other creatures out there. Yes, yes. In fact, I I had a conversation right before. That's why I'm a little like flushed because I was out outside and I just took a shower and everything to do this interview. But I was on the trail today where I met this wonderful young couple. I'll probably release the video in a couple of days or maybe just audio on the SE podcast, but they acknowledged that they thought that there's life after death and the reason, or I'm sorry, the method that they're using to get there is that they're taking it on faith, that that's the case. And they defined faith a little bit differently. They said, faith is something that you believe is true because you really, really want it to be true. So then we started talking about, well, could I 
think that uh, there is no life after death and I'm going to take it on faith. And they said, well, yeah, you could do that. And they said, well, we have a friend who thinks that when you die, you come back as some other creature. And I said, well, what if she's taking that on faith? If everyone's, if everyone's arriving at their conclusions because of faith, what does that say about faith as a process for being certain that these things are true? And I think it was slowly dawning on them that it's probably not a very good way, a good method for arriving at these conclusions if they're different. They can't all be true. So the process is probably suspect. Exactly. That's great. Yeah, and I, I, I love <laughs> it's just so good. I love this stuff. You know, one of the things I love about watching watching other people do this stuff is so educational is is you think of questions I never would have thought of, you know, or you think of ways to put things that I wouldn't have, you know, and you just, oh, yeah, right. It, sometimes just the question alone can, you know, for, mm. for somebody who's really got the wheels turning, it, it, just the questions alone can be educational. You, know? you, you never know what kind of question will really cause a person to think. Just, a, just asking a person, what do you mean exactly by God? <laughs> Yeah. For a person who's never explored it, that could be a profound earth-shaking question where for so for many people that'd be like, oh, God is Vishnu. I mean, come on. Yeah, duh. Uh, Hello. Duh. And you didn't even get into the questions about why are their justifications or their methods at all. Uh, so you again, this is about meeting people where they're at. And yeah, sometimes sometimes a very basic question can come across as very profound or Sometimes you have to have a good five or 10 minute dialogue before the, the, the more challenging questions can surface. Yeah. Well, all right, man. Well, you know, this has been great. We're going yeah. to, <laughs> this was fun. I, I love talking about this. This is like the heart and soul of critical thinking. I, I, I really, really, really love that you're out there doing this, that Peter wrote this book that, that inspired you and so many other people to, to move out and do this. And I yeah. can't, I, what, what is your website? I did, well, we have the streetepistemology.com website, mm-hmm. streetepistemology.com. And then I have a Twitter, that, which is fairly active. And I, I think on my Twitter, which is Magna Bosco, in my bio, I have a link to my personal top 10 favorite SE conversations. So you can check those out. And there's even a playlist. I'm trying to think where you can go. I think it's like tinyurl.com forward slash SE latest releases. And we have a, a rolling playlist of all the fresh SE related content. This interview will be in that playlist for a, for a good month. So anyone that's ge- generating interviews or conversations where we're using SE or talking about it, it ends up in that playlist. So if you're at all interested in what we're doing, please check out uh, any of that. Or um, we just started a Discord server to complement the Facebook group that we have too. So we have a very, a very, fact, a very active Facebook group with over 5,000 people. So search Facebook for Street Epistemology, join the Discord server, and, and tell people about what we're doing. We want feedback. We want people to try to poke, poke holes in what we're doing. Or you, if you have expertise in philosophy, psychotherapy, motivational interviewing, linguistics, whatever, and you think that you can, you can help us get better at this, Please bring your expertise forward. We, we, we don't think we have the perfect thing. Uh, we've come a long way in, a, in five years, and I think we're going to come a long, a long way further in another five. And that's only going to happen from people stepping forward and, and helping us out. And I hope that they do. Awesome, man. I hope they do too. And I hope that this uh, interview helps grow your numbers on this. Um, folks, uh, leave any questions, comments, feedback, good, bad, or sideways in the 
comment section below here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. Uh, if you've enjoyed what we are doing here, if you've found it informational, educational, entertaining, uh, consider supporting this channel on Patreon. Uh, this is uh, that's what keeps this thing going, and uh, and keeps the content uh, fresh and interesting and alive. <laughs> okay, so uh, Anthony, thank you very much again for for being part of this. It was my pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much for having me back on a second time, and maybe we can do it again sometime soon. Absolutely, man. All right, folks. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.